So Hi Felicia is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. Um, one of my guilty pleasures is um, Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that, that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I, I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, folks who are basically in my sphere at first to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about um, you know, where people come from, what their interests are, and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests, and um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. Okay, here is the bio for my guest on Hi Felicia podcast, Jason Rubin. Jason M. Rubin has been a professional writer since 1985 when he graduated from the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a degree in journalism. Since 2000, he has been an award-winning senior creative associate at Libretto Inc., a strategic messaging and content development firm in Boston. Jason's first novel, The Grave and the Gay, was published in 2012. Ancient Tales, Newly Told, his second volume, combines his latest work of historical fiction, King of Kings, with a revised version of The Grave and the Gay. He also regularly contributes art criticism to the arts fuse. And you can find Jason on his website. And uh, Jason was a fun guest. I know him from the Malden Writers Collaborative. He happens to be a neighbor of mine in Linden Square. And even though he lives around the corner, I don't think I've ever seen him out and about in the neighborhood. So he, he may be always up in his lair writing. But, you know, perhaps we'll see him at the local diner. And uh, he did once, as a very nice neighborly thing, offer to bring me milk for my coffee. So uh, I hope you enjoy my interview with my guest, Jason Rubin. Felicia. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan. Um, on my podcast today, I have Jason Rubin. I always look at the person and make sure I said the right name because sometimes I give people other names. That's me. He's nodding. Okay, good. And uh, Jason is a fellow writer with the Malden Writers Collaborative. This is your first season. However, you're a well-heeled author and uh, you just have a collection. It's a collection of n- some new stories or old stories as well. It's two historical novels in one volume. Uh, One of the um, stories, King of Kings, is brand new. 
The other one, which is called The Grave and the Gay, was published in 2012. But I chose the uh, this opportunity of a new publication to sort of update that story. Nice. So it's really just two in one. And the name of the book is? The name of the book is Ancient Tales Newly Told. And people can find it on things like Amazon, but would you prefer that they buy it through you or? Uh, anyway, anybody wants to buy it is Jake with me. You can buy it from Amazon. You can buy it from me directly. You can buy it from my publisher, which is Book Baby. And links to all these things are at my website, jasonmrubin.com. Nice. Okay. And so you are a writer. You are uh, Your full-time day job is also as writing, but you do a different type of writing there. Yeah, do you want to talk about the day job? No, you don't have to. <laughs> I work for a, uh, a small uh, marketing communications firm in the South End called Libretto, which mm-hmm. means little book. Mm-hmm. And um, so we do strategic uh, messaging for companies and, uh, you know, creating content, web content, print collateral, Mm -hmm. those kind of things. And I've been there for 18 years and I've been doing that kind of work for about 31 years, I guess. Wow. And you're also a musician. I do play drums. I don't like to call myself a musician, but I do play drums. Oh, no, that counts. <laughs> that counts. Um, wh- uh, you graduated from UMass Amherst, am I that remembering that? Oh, okay. Yes. Were, you a, a, were you an English major? I was a journalism major. Okay. Um, not that I ever wanted to be a journalist. Um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I never knew what kind of writer I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what kind of writer I wanted to be. Mm. I started out as a communications major, and it sort of sort of proved to be a bit of a dead end for me because I didn't want to go into mass communications. Mm-hmm. And a family friend had advised me towards public relations, which turned out to be not a great tip. But I, So I became a journalism major because that's where the public relations classes were held. Mm-hmm. But I found that uh, journalism education really helped um, hone my writing. Yeah. It really teaches, you know, economy and structure, um, you know, getting to the point right away, mm-hmm. writing very clearly and succinctly. So there's there's things that I've learned from my journalism education that I've used with me to this day. You know, interviewing skills, note-taking, yeah, yeah. compiling, things like that. Do you have a hard time switching between the two, between your creative writing and the day job kind of writing? Well, they're very different, but I need that. I have um, friends and and colleagues and former colleagues who are always amazed that I can work all day and then come home and and write, Mm -hmm. you know, keep writing. And for me, I would just go crazy if all – my writing was sort of for someone else to advance some company, which, you know, and I can, you know, I have various clients, some of which I believe in what they're doing very much, and I'm happy to help them. But it's, you know, this, that doesn't feed your soul. Right, right. So I have an impulse to write what I feel, and whether it takes the form of a song lyric or a short story or a poem or a novel or an essay or you know, a CD review, Um, you know, whatever it is, I just, I just can't not write. That's awesome. I, I came about it sort of differently. So I was at Boston College, I was a um, 
psychology and English major and thought with that that I would go into be a school counselor. And um, after graduating, I realized that wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do, and I kicked around doing different things. And then I found I wanted to manage and book bands. Hmm. So that's what I did. And then I went back to graduate school, and I went to MassCom, and I got my master's in marketing communications. (laughs) All roads lead to marketing. (laughs) And uh, I loved writing for press kits and doing interviews and things like that. But I was not, um, I'm not a technically precise writer. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at like formal structure. So for me, like I was good at the interview part or I was good at writing the bio or talking to the press people or doing like radio promotion or whatever. Like, but I'm not, my writing is not, I'm not good with the structure. Like the structure was the thing that used to trip me up. And so if someone wanted something like really funky and creative, I could do that. Or they wanted a nice bio or an interview I was really good at. But I'm not, I was just, it was like I would be falling all, like tripping all over myself, like trying to get out the thing. Yeah. I um I find I get bored easily. And so earlier in my career, I kind of went from job to job if I just started feeling like it was the same old, same old, I would leave and go somewhere else. And, um, you know, throughout my career, I've done public relations, investor mm-hmm. relations, corporate communications. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked, you know, in healthcare and technology, mm-hmm. um, even a specialty chemicals uh, manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have always wanted to do lots of different things mm. just to try my hand at it. And sometimes they would be like, well, we need somebody who has experience in this and I don't have it. But I'm like, but I'm a writer. Right, I can write. Right. You know, I remember when, you know, the Internet became the big thing and every company needed their first website. They were like, well, we need someone who's had experience writing websites. And I'm like, writing websites is like writing anything else. Right. Just like less linear and generally shorter and right, maybe right, a bit right. punchier but um you know I never wanted to be sort of tied down into any one sort of sector or yeah. type of writing you know I mean I like long form writing I like writing you know longer brochures and articles and white papers I've written a few speeches you know I oh, like cool. I like things that require research and and really taking some time and doing it, you know, writing a press release, again, is not the kind of thing that feeds my soul. But, you know, if I get to interview a really interesting person and have to write a profile on them, like twice I've um, I've interviewed uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web. Oh, and that was just cool. super fascinating to sit with him and listen to him talk a million words a minute. And then compile all that and write an article about it. Yeah. You know, that to me is, is a wonderful challenge. Have you ever taken, um, there's a thing in, uh, it's becoming more popular in executive coaching, but there's a thing called the TIA survey. And it's the, it's the, it's called the strengths survey, basically. And uh, it's 100 plus questions, and it sort of sh- it's similar to like um, a Myers Briggs, but mm. it categorizes you in terms of like your top five strengths. And I think there's a list of 20 strengths, and we all range like top five are what you would lead with, bottom five are things that perhaps you don't lead with, <laughs> but 
you know, it's like a thing that to be aware of. I, one of mine happens to be lifelong learning and curiosity. Mm. It sounds That's like those one. are things that, you know, especially if you like to do research and like you're interested in like finding out like the layers of something or like the meat of something. Yeah. And that again goes back to my, uh, my journalism sort of training. Um, I haven't done that. I have done Myers-Briggs. Um, Do you remember what you came up as? I mean, it changes, and I don't think it's a hard, well, hard and fast rule. I definitely but. know the introverted part. Uh, I can't remember what the other things are, but I just remember when it was revealed to me, I was like, yeah, that's me. Yeah. That sounds right. This yeah, other yeah, thing yeah. you're talking about, I can't imagine that I have 20 strengths. But uh, <laughs> Well, that's what the first time I took it. I've taken it at a variety of times, and it, depending upon how you answer things, can float back up to the top. Mm. But... Um, it's just a broad range of things, and then it's a kind of a grid, and then the top five are, like I said, the things that you lead with. It's a really interesting thing to take um, and kind of see where you fall, but lifelong learner was one, curiosity mm-hmm. is another. I forget, what, problem solver is another thing mm. for me that like, I like to, um, I like to not just scratch the surface, so like one of the things that, uh, my guests, a lot of my guests and I have been talking about is the dreaded elevator speech. Like, mm. I hate that speech because mm. I never quite know what to say to people because <laughs> I do a lot of different things. I have right. a lot of different interests. So it sounds like something similar. Like, you have a nice answer because you have a day job that is sort of encapsulates something. But that's only like an aspect of what you do. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've always self-identified as a writer, whatever I'm doing. I just think of myself as a writer from like the earliest age I can remember in elementary school, my writing always sort of got noticed. So I knew growing up that whatever I did, writing had to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, you know, I mean, I think I always, I always like to be the funniest person in the room, which is not, I'm not like a class clown type of person, but I sort of pick my spots and try Mm -hmm. to come up with something witty. And I really like when I can make people laugh to me, that's sort of my entree into social interaction Mm -hmm. is, you know, since I don't look like Brad Pitt, you know, if I can make them laugh a little bit, then, you know, maybe... Brad Pitt would be really boring if he wasn't funny. Nice <laughs> I'm sure he's pretty boring. Anyway. Yeah, humor is another thing that's on that list, too. Yeah, yeah, you should check it out. You would find it really interesting. Um, I'd like to get back to your book, though. You did bring it. Were you interested in reading a passage from it so we can get a, a sense of what it's like? Or Sure, I would be happy to. Okay. So take it away, Jason. Tell us what you're reading and what, like, is, is it in a certain chapter or well, do you want to explain it's up to you? I think I should because people don't even know what it's about yet. Okay. So, um, so King of Kings uh, tells the story of the meeting between and um, the romance between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. But it's told primarily from the Ethiopian tradition, which is not something I had ever heard about before. You know, I went to Sunday school as a kid, and um, and I'm the kind of person who actually reads Gideon's Bibles when I'm in a hotel room. But um, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, the meeting of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba is all of 13 verses in the first book of Kings. And basically, she hears about this wise king. She comes to visit. She asks him, you know, thorny questions. She delights in his answers. He gives her gifts, and she goes home. And it turns out that the Ethiopians have a very different uh, angle on that story in that 
she came to visit. She stayed for six months. Solomon tricked her into sleeping with him. She got pregnant, went back and had the baby, and Ethiopian rulers into the 20th century, um, right up to uh, Haile Selassie I in the, in the 1960s, traced their lineage back to Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Wow. And this is nothing I had ever heard of before. But we don't it, know anything in America about um, African history at all. Right. Or Middle Eastern history even, unless right. we are specifically looking for it, I think. And, um, you know, Haile Selassie was the, the person that Rastafarians believed was God incarnate. And they called him King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Conquering Lion of the tribe of Judah. And Solomon was, as David's son, the uh, from the tribe of Judah. So that's sort of where that all falls in. So it does connect to the Hebrew Bible, but, you know, the Hebrew Bible doesn't have anything about them getting together, getting it on. Yeah. You know, it's a very transactional sort of thing. Yep, yep. So, um, and I learned about this because I was listening to a CD by the jazz singer Cassandra Wilson, mm-hmm. and she has a song called Solomon Sang. And I could tell from the lyrics that it was about King Solomon, but then there's this line where it says, and when he lay down with Makeda, Solomon sang. And I'd never heard the name Makeda before associated with Solomon, so I Googled it and found out it's the Ethiopian name for the Queen of Sheba. And I found out about the uh, Ethiopian scriptural book called the Kebra Nagast, which means uh, the glory of kings. And the whole story is in there. So... um, you know, as I said, my first novel was also a piece of historical fiction, and it required research to, you know, describe the setting and create characters and stuff. And so I thought this would be a good follow-up. So I did a lot of research from a lot of different sources, from the Ethiopian, from the Hebrew Bible, from the New Testament, the Quran, um, and just kind of put it all together and, and uh, tried to make an entertaining book about it. Yeah. So uh, it's structured also to sound sort of biblical. There's like the first book of Solomon, the first book of Michaela, Makeda. Um, and each section begins with, uh, with a prologue. And so this, the book actually be, opens with this first prologue in which the son of Solomon and Makeda, whose name was Menelik. Um, That's a name you don't hear these days. You don't, but I actually heard it way back when. Um, I, I'm... I'm met a little boy. I used to work at WGBH, uh-huh. and um, there was a reading rainbow contest in local schools uh, where kids had to write and illustrate a story, and I was asked to be one of the preliminary judges. Uh-huh. And the best story I read was by a, a little boy named Menelik Washington. Oh, wow. And I'd never heard that name before, and that's why the name stuck with me. And years later, when I came upon it in this research, it was like, you know, between the Cassandra Wilson CD and that, I mean, there's just like a lot of lightning bolts that said, Jason, write this story. Yeah, no kidding. Um, So, uh, so Makeda got pregnant, came back to Sheba, um, had the child. The child did not know who his father was. Obviously, Solomon was still in Israel. So uh, I decided to open the book with uh, the day that Menelik realized that it was time to ask his mother, the Queen of Sheba, who his father was. Mm -hmm. Menelik was still a young man that day. That day he had the lion in his belly. And with this courage, he went to his mother to ask a question he never before had dared to ask, seeking an answer he never before had needed to know. He was 12 years removed from his mother's womb, 
and the full-grown man he would become was apparent in his features already. He was handsome, his fellow villagers would say, like his father. Wise as the man from whose seed he had bloomed, a shade or two lighter in skin color than his mother, who loved him, and his peers, who teased him because of these characteristics. As a child would, Menelik accepted his life as mostly normal, with his home, his family, and his relation to the community all as it should be. But, as a child would, he was also sensitive to the taunts of his friends and the remarks he overheard the older people speak. Not that anyone ever was mean or malicious in their teasing or their talk. In the whole of his life, Menelik experienced only the highest level of respect paid to him and especially to his mother. Which is to be expected, given that his mother was Makeda, the Queen of Sheba, the wealthiest nation in southern Arabia, situated on the Red Sea's southeastern shore. By virtue of Sheba's sophisticated merchant marine, which enabled its people to traverse that lean body of water in large ships for trade and emigration, Makeda also served, as did her predecessors, as ruler of Ethiopia, located west of the Red Sea. For that reason, gaining an audience with her at the height of the day, while important visitors waited in the sun to discuss large matters with her, to ask her a question cloaked with the weight of personal discomfort and curiosity, was difficult, even for Menelik, her only son. I know this, for I was Makeda's most favored servant, and many were those who waited while she and I discussed matters of trade and other subjects. I am Tamrin, the trader. I undertook other responsibilities on behalf of Sheba, but I always considered myself just that, a traitor. It was enough for me, and thanks to my closeness with the queen, I had the privilege of watching young Menelik grow up. How well I remember. Though he had his father's pleasing features, Menelik was not thought by some elders likely to inherit his father's wisdom or his mother's strength. As he grew older, though, his body started to mature, turned leaner, revealed the contoured musculature beneath his umber skin. Still, he stood on the unsteady plank of adolescence, with one foot in childhood and the other in young manhood. Play still consumed much of his time and his interest, and mostly he saw his mother only during morning meals and at bedtime. Though it was just the two of them, Menelik did not complain about his limited access to her. He understood that his mother was important, a great woman, a leader who was strong yet fair, admired if not feared by people who came from lands where strange languages were spoken, whose clothes bore the dust of long voyages, all to request her blessing to engage in trade. Menelik was proud that his mother commanded such attention and respect, though he understood little of the details of trade between nations, knew nothing of negotiation or the strategies with which one could gain an advantage over the other. No, that was my domain, and no one knew better than I of such things. As for Menelik, he knew only that his mother was not available to him as other mothers were to their children. But Menelik's life now had spanned twelve harvests, and he was of the age when he was expected to spend more time learning from his father than being cared for by his mother. Servants had attended to his every need, and they were kind and caring, but they could not hold him in their arms, caress his head, look deeply into his searching eyes, and tell him the stories of his family. These stories would fill Menelik with the knowledge of who he was and where he came from. They would arm him with awareness of the skills and strengths, traits and talents of those who had come before him, and through that knowledge he would understand that those characteristics were in him as well. But he knew none of that. He had not been told. He knew only his name, Menelik, and he knew its meaning, son of the wise man. Who was this wise man, this father he didn't know and had never met? He long had wondered, yet now, yet until now any appetite for knowledge he may have possessed had been sated by the fact that all his other needs were met by his loyal coterie of servants. 
His moments alone with his mother were so rare and so treasured that he feared angering or disappointing her by asking such questions. There must be a reason she had never told him of his origins. He had accepted that until the day when he noticed his body changing. Hairs were growing where none had grown before. His voice was as the unreliable tone of a cracked ram's horn, and that part of him that was boy had suddenly come to have a mind of his own. It too was growing, and sometimes would transform itself from hanging flesh to jutting bone, yet he knew not why or how. Yes, Menelik was becoming a man, this he knew, and he wondered who and where was the man that he might look like. What kind of man could he become if he did not know what kind of man had sired him? The time had come. Finally, Menelik needed to know the answer. Finally, he was willing to risk asking the question of the one person who held the knowledge he sought, his mother, Makeda, the Queen of Sheba. And so one day, when his years numbered twelve, he left his companions, left the stifling heat of the midday sun, left the once comforting balm of ignorance, and approached the room in the palace where she sat upon her throne. That's great. Thank you. When you write a story like that, and there's sort of all these different things that you're pulling from, and history and texts, do you um, does it ever make you um, think about your own sort of origin and family and story, and like, do you relate to it or? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting. I mean, I think there has to be a part of you somewhere in whatever you're writing and not necessarily just in one particular character. Um, but I don't think, I mean, for me anyway, it's not, it, it's not sort of an exploration of that. I, you know, it can just sort of come out in, in sort of the dialogue and the situation. And there might be something, you know, some trait of yours that you imbue a character with. There's an, a uh, still unfinished, not worked on for many years, other novel that I started in between these two. And um, it was just so blatantly about me that I just stopped. <laughs> and it was in the first person. It was like, you know, this is not writing. This is just typing. <laughs> you know, I was I was basically just talking about my life and giving the character a different name. Mm -hmm. And But if someone didn't know you, would they know that? Uh, maybe not, but frankly, it also, you know, wasn't that interesting <laughs> anymore. Um, you know, sort of the, the, the stories that I chose to retell in, that are both in this, um, book are, you know, of places far away mm -hmm. and times long ago. Yep. And so there's not any direct sort of analogs. Yep, yep. to my life and 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 I think to some extent that's helpful but to make the characters real um and well-rounded you have to really build them uh with a lot of with a lot of depth and detail yeah and you know I do pull f from my life from people I know um like the hero in the first book the grave and the gay is a guy I shared an apartment with in college. Um, not that he's exactly like that, but that's mm -hmm. the, that when I described the character, I was seeing my friend in my head, mm -hmm. and that's absolutely him. And he conceivably would be able to read that and say, oh, that's probably me. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, recent guests that I had on, we talked about ritual, and he's a, he's a, one of the things that he does is he's a professional storyteller. Mm. 
And I said, he likes to tell a lot of different myths, and uh, he likes Joseph Campbell, and we talked about religious traditions, and he does a lot of, like, Native American storytelling. And um, I said, do you tell your own stories? And he's like, no. <laughs> like, he hasn't, he's just not, he loves the the fable and the myth more. Mm -hmm. He's better at that retelling. He enjoys that, that, um using it as a teach uses it as a teaching tool too mm -hmm. and i think there's um i always ask that question because um i can't not write about myself and that's maybe a selfish quality i have about my writing like i just can't i always am like when i read someone else's writing i'm like oh where are they in there mm -hmm. like that's my curiosity mm -hmm. um not that, like you just said, that has to be well-rounded. And, like, obviously there's a lot of you in there if there's not your life in there. Mm -hmm. Like, your research, your time, your curiosity, you're wanting to pull together different pieces to blend into this book. So, I mean, there's a lot of you in there. There's just perhaps not, like, your life story and your your children and, you know, your family or whatever. But there's that your life uh, history informed that process that you went through to write that book. Yeah. You know, um, last year, uh, there was a group of people at the Malden library who were doing the national novel writing month thing. And I, that's where my first book started. Is was that doing Na that. NAMO? NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo. Um, and I had offered to, um, speak to the group and share my own experiences of it. And in um, in talking with the group, and I talked about what my book was about. It's about a 17th century English folk ballad, and it's about uh, adultery and murder between the classes, because they always say, write what you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, at one point, you know, this lucky little, you know, pearl of wisdom escaped my lips. I said, look, you can only write the book that you can write. Yeah. You know, because like they were asking, well, do you ever think of writing something more commercial, like, you know, with vampires or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever sells these days. Historical. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's just not, I'm just not keyed into that right. at all. I, I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't know how, I wouldn't want to. Right. You know, the, the books that I can write are the books that uh, have subjects that interest me, that require me to do some research right, and, right. and doing all those kind of things. That's just, that's just me. And it's not sort of good or bad or anything, right, but right. that's, you know, that's one thing that distinguishes me from other writers and right. every writer has their own thing. And, right. and, you know, and some people need, need to write about themselves. That's right. an exploration. And there's something in there as with fables and myths that other people can find applicable to themselves. Right, right. Right. And, and um, that's a nice, maturity is the wrong word, but you have sort of like Definitely a... for me, it's a wrong word. <laughs> it has like a nice, you have a nicely developed sense of who you are as a writer. Like some of us who call ourselves writers are like writers. Like we don't, right. we don't know how to state that. And we talk about it in almost an apologetic way. Mm -hmm. um, but you have a nice sense of like who you are as a writer and you're... <laughs> like, like Stuart Smalley, like you're okay, I'm okay <laughs> about it. But that's yeah. like that's, that's like I said, I probably that's perhaps why you're good at what you do. Well, I mean, I've I've probably 
you know, considered myself a writer since I was like eight years old. Yeah. So and no one talked you out of that. That's pretty unremarkable. Yeah. I wish somebody talk, had. <laughs> and you didn't talk yourself out of it either. No, I mean there's there's other interests I have, but this is just something that I seem to be good at and it interested me and I I sort of never like I would observe other people talking about challenges they were having with writing if it was a book report or you know mm-hmm. a paper or something mm-hmm. and then I always like well I don't know how to get started and this and and I just you know I never feared a blank piece of paper mm-hmm. or a blank screen and I never tried to sort of self-edit as mm-hmm. I go you know it just you know you just cut open a vein and do it yeah you, know, you just you just kind of do it for me it's it's never been a problem getting started that doesn't mean that you know, everything I put down on paper mm-hmm. is good. I mean, that's, you know, the best writing is the rewriting. Mm-hmm. So, um, in so, fact, for the for the first book, I spent three years writing it and three years rewriting it before it got published. That's dedication. <laughs> were you, were you, do you think that was purposeful on your part or were you, were you questioning what, what it well, was you were writing? Well, I had time to do it because nobody was willing to publish it got for it. a while. Got it, got it. You know, I spent time looking for an agent and looking, then looking for a small publisher who would publish it without having an agent. Um, and I sort of lucked out and, and finally found one. And if I hadn't, I'd probably be editing it to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows when yep. a work is ever really done. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great, it's a great exercise that, you know, maybe not everybody would find interesting to just keep beating up the same document, you know, over yep. and over and over for yep. years and years and years. But stuff comes to you, and even, you know, I hate to admit it, when I'm doing work for clients and, you know, they ask for changes, and the changes are like, oh, my God, come on, this is, this yes. is perfect the way it is. Yes. It's like, what are you yes. introducing this new thing for? Yes. And then some, you know, it could be, well, we've got some new thing that's being announced, and you have to, like, change it. Right. So then you go back, and you're like, all right, remember, remember, and before you know it, you've, like, incorporated the new thing, you've taken out the thing that didn't fit, and you're like, wow, right. this is actually better. Right. There is... um. Uh, my fiance is in a band, and they're uh, they're all seasoned musicians, but this is the first time they've all played together, mm-hmm. and they've only played nine shows out together. So they're still coming together as a band, but everybody, almost everybody sings, everybody is writing, so it's a very exciting project. But they're almost, they have almost so much new stuff that they are... Um, constantly trying to put that into the set Mm -hmm. and it's a hard thing when you're a musician to incorporate the new stuff as well as continuously play the old stuff because that's the thing people are going to know you for right so it's sort of like how do you learn as a writer to put down the old stuff and be like okay it's done for now perhaps i'll come back to it and like start to work on the old stuff like how do you balance that because it's interesting to write the news. It's interesting to write the new stuff. Right. Um, for me, again, you know, I tend to get bored. So, like the uh, the unfinished novel that I mentioned, um, I was writing it, writing it. I had some good stuff in there, stuff I really liked. And then I just I hit a wall with one situation. I sort of created, and I don't plan my books out in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, I just sort of start at the beginning and go until I reach the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just like, I just wrote some, uh, 
plot twist into it and it just stopped me cold. I'm like, oh, how am I, what am I going to do with that? And I just stopped and I just, I said, well, I better, you know, just step away from it a little bit and, you know, work on something else. Um, the second book took even longer to write than the first one, um, partly because I was happier in my life and I didn't have like, you know, yeah. alone time to, yep, uh, yep, yep. to write. But um, I had much of it written and I just couldn't bring myself to take the time to finish it. And I actually got guilted into doing it through con- conversations with people. <clears throat> I had conversations with people and they would say, how's that book coming? And I hadn't worked on it for like six months. It's like, well, you know, it was it was good. I, I seem to remember it. I remember where I left off. That is off. accountability right there, personified. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so that when the, the gallery store in Malden... Uh, was up. They were selling the first book, or yep. they were they were putting it on the shelf. Yeah. Didn't sell that much, but um, you know, everyone kept saying, "When's there going to be an, a next one? When's there going to be a next one?" I yep. said, "Well, as soon as I write it." And finally, I got tired of answering the question, so I just went back to it and picked up where I left off. And in the time away, it just made it so much easier to get back into it, yeah. and it felt good to you know be with these characters again and 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 I just sort of like finished the whole thing in maybe like two months after that and I was really thrilled with it and um and went through you know the rewriting phase and I found when I you know I reached the end and then I went back to the beginning and just kind of read through it and made changes and I found I wasn't really making that many changes I actually liked the story the way it was do you how do you um I know that your new to the writers group this year Mm. how have you been finding being involved with like different types of writers and like it's been an interesting experience because i don't really consider myself a joiner or a belonger really i talked two people into joining this year you and jeff (laughs) (laughs) it was funny too because i threw it out there because i was excited about being because i found it kept me writing Mm -hmm. in a way that i hadn't before and excited to kind of show up and see what other people were gonna so the fact that i talked it up to you and i talked it up to jeff who I I had both seen you out in the community like, oh, you guys are producing some stuff. This might be interesting to have you there. Yeah. See, my my thing is um, I always sort of consider myself kind of a lone wolf, and I like to just sit by myself and write and not let anybody see it. Uh Like Even after it's published, it's like, don't everybody see it. (laughs) Um, That's working against your own public relations right right there. Right, right, right. but and the and on the flip side of that was that if I'm going to join a writers group, I want to talk about my writing. Right, right, and, right, right. And it yeah. actually was a period of adjustment because at the beginning, you know, we'd we'd workshop other people's pieces, and I'd be my attitude was, oh, okay, well, we're all writers here, so I'm going to read other people's writing, and I'll be entertained by it. Yes. And I would read stuff, and it's like, huh, this is science fiction. I don't really enjoy science fiction, or yep. this is young adult. I don't yep. really enjoy young adult. And so I was like, I'm not getting anything out of this. Yes. And yeah. then it kind of dawned on me, like, ping, maybe because I've been writing for like 30, 40 years professionally, maybe I have something that I can share with people exactly. from my experience. Exactly. And, and other people's, you know, different uh, perspectives, you know, can be useful in my writing too. And then suddenly I stopped you know, having this attitude of, you know, entertain me. You stop judging. 
I stopped. <laughs> well, it was it was it was less about what can you do for me and what can I provide to the group. Yeah. And when I reached yeah. that, you know, um, enlightened phase, I think I became a better um, reviewer of people's work, yeah, yeah. and 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 um, the group uh, became more fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's true, though. I mean, I think all I think maybe I'm generalizing, but I think all writers join a writer's group because they want to talk about their writing. Like, that's not an unusual thing. Like, mm-hmm. we're not there for the coffee or the candy or whatever. Or we're not even there sometimes for the good company because sometimes people who are solo writers are not social creatures. That's yeah. okay, too. But the thing that I found similar to you that I really like about that experience is reading things that probably I wouldn't normally read because it's not my genre or my interest or my taste or whatever. But then having to put on your critique hat where you're like, okay, well, what is something in this that they're doing well that I could incorporate into my own writing, Mm -hmm. like a style or a thing or an aspect or whatever it is. And then also being able to view different types of writing is also a way of being like, maybe I want to change things up. Maybe I want to expand what I do. Maybe I'd like to do a dialogue thing differently or whatever it is. And there's so many different types of writers in our little group. Right. And um, initially I was sort of like, huh, there doesn't seem to be that many full-time writers like me. Yes, yes. But through the discussions that we have during during the um, the workshop meetings, I mean, there's so many people who have so much knowledge about all yes. kinds of different areas. Yes, yes. And that's, that's sort of the thing that um, – you know, having sort of arcane knowledge or just like good experience in a particular area, you know that that's going to come out in someone's story because that's yes. something that they can really delve into deeply. Yeah. And it's really, you know, the conversations are fast. Sometimes, you know, I, I yes. contribute what I can, but I enjoy sort of listening to people talk about sort of what they know. Like if somebody puts something in their story and it's sort of inaccurate based on you know, someone yes. else's knowledge and you sort of have a discussion around that. It's yeah. really interesting. And the week that, that I got to have my piece workshops, I was very... <laughs> You're looking at me. <laughs> I was very... No, I was... Uh, well, I was late, first of all, and ended up running because there was oh, no. there was a meeting. Of, I didn't there was remember some, that. There was some event happening at the high school and I couldn't find a parking space. And so I was that running, running, sometimes. running, and I was completely out of breath and showed up late for my own... Uh, workshop, but um, you know, it was really it was really interesting to hear everybody's um, you know opinions. Obviously, I liked the first part of the evening when they did all the positive stuff before they went in with the critiques. <laughs> but then at the end of the night, I, I went home and I had this stack of marked up you yeah. know drafts and comment sheets, and I went reading through them like, what have they done? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then I just like left it. You yeah. know, I sort of read everything, you know, internalized it. Some yep. things I agreed with, some things I didn't agree with. Yep. Um, but I just put it down and because I was still dealing with getting this book published yep. in the same time period and arranging for all that. And uh, eventually uh, the the public reading was coming up and I said, I better revise this story so gonna, I have something to read. Are you going to read? Yeah. Oh, good. So 
I sat down. Do you have down. any life coach questions? <laughs> you, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. It's like it would be great for me to interview you and get like details about stuff like that. But sometimes it's also great to have that beginner's mind and be able to play more mm-hmm. fancifully with it and mm-hmm. romanticize it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But when I finally got to rewriting it, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to change this ending right away. You know, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go boom, 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 boom. And I go like this. And then um, I did all these other things. So it was was told first person from this, like, obnoxious guy's point of Mm -hmm. view, which all the women in the group pointed out to me. This guy was really obnoxious and was not me. He was not me. He was a little bit me. Um, And so... uh, I decided to give the woman in question her own first-person narrative oh, within. Oh, how interesting. And suddenly, so it's his his perspective and her perspective and his perspective and her perspective, and sometimes they're um, really disparate, and other times they're really overlapping and looking at the same thing from, from two okay. different places. And I was really, I just had really good momentum. And I just, you know, sometimes you just know Mm -hmm. what you need to do. And so I was writing it, boom, boom, boom. And when I was done, I was like really happy with it. And then I went back to that stack of marked up drafts and comments from Mm -hmm. everybody in the group. And I was like, okay, well, I I guess I incorporated that or this. But one person, Michelle. She she gives great critique. Yeah, the key things like changing the beginning and um, I don't want to get into the narrative, but it's like who gets the gift, who gives the gift. I changed that and um, and the whole thing about giving you know the woman Kathy her own voice, all of those things were uh, exactly things that she had That's awesome. pointed out. And I was you know, I wrote to her, I sent her a message, I said, I just fixed it, and then I went back and realized that everything I did was things that you had told me to do. So thank you That's for so cool. thank you for nailing what my story needed. Yeah, yeah. And there was, and again, this was a story that I told people that I'd been working on for years. Yeah. And had submitted it twice, and had been rejected twice, and um, and suddenly it's an it's a whole new story, mm-hmm. and it's like three thousand words longer, but it's richer, and I just like it. That's awesome. <laughs> really good. I really like and it a lot. And that's that's the power of the group too, because yeah. I think last year I was super nervous to share my work with that many people, and because I write, you know, mostly nonfiction. I don't know with some with fantastical elements to it. It's like a weird thing for have people talk about the work like it's a character, but it's really about me growing up or, and. Um, but I also remember thinking, like, I've gotten a, a space where I'm comfortable enough. Like, I don't envision a reader. I write for myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I hope other people like it. And I'm always jazzed to hear what people liked or didn't like about it. But I'm okay if they don't get it or it's not their thing or I'm probably not writing for them anyways. That's okay. Right. And uh, this second time around, I was like nervous to hear what people were saying, but not because I was going to, it's more like, you know, feeling like uh, vulnerable or exposed, I guess. Um, But I, I love that stack. I love going back to that stack and reading Mm. what people have written. And then even the small group that we had when they workshop my stuff, um, 
like just the range of what people said re really pleased me and the fact that people saw a bunch of different things. Yeah. You're all sitting next to each other, but you all saw different things. That was what I wanted to hear. Like right. that, I wanted people to come away with different slices of it. And um, I knew some people were not going to like the dream that got stuck in the end of one thing. They weren't going to like that. Well, That's okay. You know, yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. I sort of talked about it in the session, but when you're reading memoir, you know, there's this sort of different ways you can sort of connect with it or not connect with it. And if there's something like in some of your first episodes, there's sort of nostalgic things about family yeah. activities and stuff. And yeah. everybody has, you know, their own version of that. And so you can sort of connect with that. But then, you know, a lot of people said, because in anybody's, anybody's, anybody's life that has something worth writing about, which I think is everybody, um, there's difficult subject matter sure. to address. And a lot of people said that, you know, you were brave right. for including certain things. Right. But from the reader's perspective, you know, it's very sort of humbling to be given that kind of material to ingest. And I don't want to take this in a really dark place, but I had the opportunity of talking to um, a friend of mine, who, the sister of a friend of mine who is now a friend of mine, um, whose uh, son died from suicide. Oh. And she showed me his note. And it was just a really powerful thing to read. Yeah. Um, an amazing thing to read. And, you know, you need to read people's work, whether it's memoir or anything else, with a level of respect. Right, right, right. And, you know... You know, that suicide note was not something that I was going to critique. Right, right. But there were things about it that just jumped out at me, how compassionate it was, how neat the handwriting was. Right. Um, how comfortable this person appeared to be in that moment. Right. And that's, you know, that's such a powerful thing. And, you know, reading your work and other people in the group who have who have done memoir work, it's, you know, you really sort of have to... Um, it's a, it's almost a trust. Yes. You know, yeah. you're trusting me with this slice of your life that I wouldn't otherwise know. Right. And even, you know, whether it's sort of very bare and raw like that node or rendered artfully um, the way you did, you know, it's it is a responsibility on the reader to accept that right. in a certain certain way. Thank you. Yeah, it's and I think the group really does a good job with that too. Like I think Heather said that it felt very comfortable when she was envisioning the group reading it. She knew, she knew she could trust them with that mm. information or that story and um and that I definitely felt that, but there's still like that nerves of like um how will they receive it? Is it is it done, is it processed enough to the point, and I, I feel like it is, but you just never know, like, I always worry for people reading it thinking, like, oh, that poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> she, she had such a tragic life. And I don't feel that way about it, but I also was, like, I was ex I had sent some of the, those pieces to a friend, and I said, you know, it really has an emotional element to it, but, like, I'm taking an experience, and I'm kind of blowing it up. Mm -hmm. So it's like, like, that's obviously not all of my childhood was, right. like, these 
dark, sad moments or, right. or the funny moments or whatever. But I'm taking one aspect of it and kind of expanding it or blowing it up so that you get a sense of that. So you can feel it. You can taste it. You can touch it. Um, you are immersed in that one experience. But just like anybody, it's like, yeah, it was good. We went on vacation. Yeah, my dad put the bike on the roof, and I was afraid it was going to fall off. But, you know. Um, People are interesting. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, when you are thinking about your kids and what they want to do in life, how mm. do you install them with the same type of confidence to know that they're heading in that right direction of whatever they want to do? Like You obviously had someone along the way encouraged you, or you just – naturally believed you were a writer yeah i mean i got good feedback on it and so that um and also it was fun to do and easy to do so i don't know whether it's confidence or laziness you know it would have you know another person might have wanted to um stretch their comfort zone and say well i know i'm really good at this but maybe i'll try that instead um I have two daughters. They're 10 years apart. One is graduating college next month. Oh, my God. Congratulations. The, thank you. The other is in seventh grade. And they're very, very different people. Um, seventh grade is hard. But they, yeah, but she's she's the one who can handle it really well. <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they're both really, they're both very good writers, which um, is a point of pride. Um, and they enjoy it. Um their personalities are are such that the younger one, you know, I sort of don't worry about her at all. Whatever she wants to do, she'll find a way to do it and do it well. She's very assertive in that way. Um, but she she was um, studying trumpet for a few years, and she's getting really good and had a private teacher and, you know, reading music and performing in the school bands and things like that, and was really, you know, on a promising trajectory, it seemed to me. And I took a lot of pride in that because, you know, I wanted a musician in the family. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but she's she's also a an athletic type. And she's been playing soccer and basketball. And she knew that if she stayed with trumpet uh, until she became a member of the marching band, that that would use up all her time and she wouldn't be able to play sports. Mm -hmm. So she announced that she was going to give up trumpet. Oh, gosh. And that was, you know, I was disappointed. I didn't want to express that to her because it was a selfish disappointment. But I know how much she enjoys competition, which is something that I was, I mean, I played sports as a kid, but I was never very competitive. Win or lose, it didn't really bother me one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, whatever makes her happy, I know she'll be she'll be great at it. I know that she wants to rescue dogs. Um, the the woman who's uh, featured on Pitbulls and Parolees is her idol. And um, so she wants to rescue Pitbulls and be a veterinarian. Oh. <coughs> the older one, we'll have to see. She's, um, she's um, I would say, less assertive, very, very creative. Um doesn't like to be told um, what to do, um, but has like, you know, a really bright, bright personality. Used to be darker than it is. Um, I'm glad she's sort of grown out of that, although she wrote some amazing poetry when she was a darker person. Um, 
but um, she just has the look of someone who's going to be successful. She just has a real joy about her. And, I, you know, they're sort of interested in things that I don't know a lot about, you know, whether it's competition or, you know, just the things that my older daughter is is studying. And so I don't I don't feel like I would direct them one way or another. Mm-hmm. I support them both 100% in anything they do. I help them in any way I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're smart, and, uh, you know, I feel pretty fortunate about about having them in my life. It's tough. The um, My um, fiancé's daughter is 13, so she's in seventh grade. And um, I've known her since she was three, so I've been around and in her life. And uh, her mom and her dad um, are really good co-parents. And uh, it took a while for me to be uh, – I always felt comfortable in the mix, but I don't know that um, – it was always reciprocated, but now it's reciprocated. It's sort of stated fact. We're all Team Fiona. It's mm-hmm. good. Um, but Fiona is this really interesting mix. She's very sensitive, like uber sensitive. Um, she's got a gorgeous voice, like unbelievable range. She was taking private lessons for a while. So it's, that was really, really thought she had found her thing, having cycled through a bunch of different things that she sort of gave up on, like gymnastics and swimming and this and that. And then she talked herself out of being athletic in any way, shape, or form, even though she has this unbelievable eye-hand coordination that her dad has. And um, she had a couple of rounds of trying out for the school play, and she was in, like, the chorus at one point, and she did the -the behind-the-scenes stuff. And then we found out, like, sort of six months later, she had quit the play Mm. because she didn't get her leading role and Mm. she couldn't be the YouTube star. (laughs) And we just, like, she's, like, this fascinating mix of, like, she's really bright. She's very articulate. Um, She spends a lot of time on the phone. Uh, She's silly. She's goofy. She's got a lot of talents, but she doesn't really have a thing that she likes to do. Mm -hmm. She doesn't like competition in any way, shape, or form, but she wants to be the first in line for whatever the thing is (laughs) and doesn't understand quite why she can't. Um, And we always say, like, you know, she'll find her thing. We, We... we want her to have a thing so she has that sense of mastery and that sense of pride around something. Right. Um, but maybe that's us wanting it for her rather than her needing a thing. Well, I think everybody has a thing and they find it in their own way. Yeah. And it's easy because with the older one, I wanted to, I remember wanting to push her into learning an instrument. Absolutely refused to do it. And... You know, she did dance as a little kid, like a lot of yeah. little girls yep, yep. do. And yeah, Fiona um, does dance. We'll put that in the quotes because right. it's really like it's music video. Like there's always like in everything that she does, there's a thing called snaking up. <laughs> so her dad are like, "Is there snaking up in that dance?" <laughs> she did that from like age like three to eight or something like that. And then they she got her little five year medal from the dance school and she said, Okay, I'm done with that. I'm like, okay, well you gotta do something now. Okay, so this is this is <clears throat> this is making me feel a little better. <laughs> In middle school she found theater. Okay. Um and she was really good at it and she went to um Tufts has a really good summer theater camp mm-hmm. for kids. She yep. did that for a few years. Actually the the younger one did as well. Um and she did theater for a few years and then graduated high school and said, all right, I'm done with theater. I'm like, oh, come on. 
don't. And uh, actually, it was, it was middle school. But in high school, she, um, she took an elective on improvisation and actually was able to uh, go to Chicago and do an experience with Second City. Oh, wow. With, with like her group. And she would tell me about the things that she does. And her mind was just amazing. She would come up with these amazing, yes, um, sometimes really dirty or gritty, you know, improvisations based on a scene that none of her classmates were going anywhere near that. Yeah. And I just thought it was amazing. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a great skill. That's a kind of skill. You don't have to be a performer right. to benefit from that skill. Right, you know, you right, could do right. anything with that. Being quick-witted. Yeah, just like thinking really on your feet, yeah, and and riffing on what a, what someone else is doing, yeah. Um, you know, that's a great deal of it's listening, it's empathy, it's you know everything a musician needs, everything uh, you know any good uh, collaborator in a business environment needs, or any creative. Fiona person. had um, you know how they do uh, tests for different school systems, so Fiona scored really high on the STEM stuff, like. Mm-hmm like higher than her grade, higher than her school district, and like very close to like the eighth percentile in the state. Mm. So we're like, she's going to be some sort of weird engineer that will like create an app that makes like an emoji go like, or something like, (laughs) like the thing that we possibly can't think of is like the thing that probably she'll end up doing. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) So we, like, don't, we don't even know what the jobs are I that know. kid that our kids will have when they grow up. Well, the stuff that like sometimes we'll on like uh, Saturday nights when we're looking for a movie or something, we've tried to expose her to some like different types of movies when she's been kind of like, nah, not so much. Like we we watched together the Legend of Buster Scruggs, which okay. is the latest Coen Brothers movie. Okay. It's like a series of different vignettes. Mm-hmm. It's really dark. It's funny. She didn't like it because they talked old-fashioned in it. Mm-hmm. Um, she wouldn't like my books then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but her thing is, like, she likes to watch this lady on YouTube who um, takes apart squishies and, and repaints them and puts them together again. Uh-huh. And I was like... Like, why? Yeah. Like, what value does that bring to the world, recycling squishies? Yeah. You know, my um, Stella, my younger one, she's very in attuned to, like, who the YouTube stars are yeah. or the Instagram stars. Yes. You know, people who are, like, famous on social media but, you know, not necessarily in real life. Yes. She's very attuned to that. I don't think she wants to be that, but it's just interesting to me as sort of a value thing in terms of who's – making great contributions right. <laughs> to society. Right, it's right, a very right. different scale than how uh, hopefully she'll, you know, grow into a, a, a broader appreciation for, you know, how to, how to be, fa- you know, right. how to be famous in this world. Well, I think at 13, everyone wants to be famous in some regard. So YouTube is, in, and Instagram is the thing right now. So neither of which, like... You watch. I've watched some of the squishy remaking, having or rehabbing videos, and she'll be like, "So and so has like a million subscribers." And I'm like, "Really? For squishy videos? <laughs> squishy videos? Right. You know what squishies are? Too, I don't, right? Yeah. You don't have those horrible things in your house. Do I you? don't. You know, but you know, when I see them in the store, I, I 
pick them up and squish them. <laughs> but that's that satisfies my my squishing that's crazy. requirements. Have you thought of this? Is totally changing subjects. Have you okay. thought of reading your book and recording your your like recording yourself reading the book as an audio book? Well, you have a voice for it. Well, it's funny you say that because I've always thought that. Um, you know, I have a great face for radio and a good voice for print. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm sort of nasally. But I also, I can't imagine reading my book in, in its entirety. One thing about me as a writer is that when I'm done with something, I'm really done with it. Uh-huh. I don't like to, like, look at it again um, unless it's not finished. But once right. it's finished, you know, I have a real tough time, you know, like – at work, if I write something, a brochure or something, and it's done, and maybe, you know, it takes, you know, a few weeks after that for it to get laid out, designed, uh, printed, and then we get our samples, and I pick it up, and I start reading it. I'm like, ugh, bleh. Um, But uh, I don't know. If, if someone thought they wanted to hear me uh, read this, I would do it, I suppose. It feels like it would take a long time. Um you could get Stella to put you on YouTube. I mean, my... <laughs> you get a million subscribers. I know. Uh, my girlfriend got the audio book of uh, Michelle Obama's oh. memoir that she reads. And... Uh, Is it good? She said it was just the most amazing thing. Yeah. And, um, but I can imagine... like That's a voice I would love to hear. Yeah. I could stick with that for several hours, listening yeah. to someone's voice. I love... Um, one of my favorite writers is David Sedaris. Mm. And I love... Um, listening to his books. Like, I don't necessarily enjoy reading them as much as I do listening mm-hmm. to them because he reads them. Yeah. And so he's got, like, this. He's got, I mean, uh, I'm sure his voice drives most people crazy, but I love his voice. And I love it when he reads the stories. Yeah. I mean, beyond that, I'm, you know, I'm still a paper guy. I like the, Are phys- you? I like the physical aspect, like with music. It's like, my, you know, my daughter's. You know, if if I would hear that they like something, a song on the radio, I'm like, oh, would you like me to pick up that CD for you? Like, Ugh, a CD? What am I going to do with a CD? Right. You know, they don't even like going to MP3s. You know, if they want to no. listen to music, they'll just play the YouTube video on yes. their phone. You know, with no good speaker system, no yeah. fidelity. It sounds awful, and, too. Yeah, and I, you know, as a teenager, I would put on a record, a vinyl record. I would lie on my bed with the record read the lyrics, uh, read the list of musicians, yeah. see who the producer was, see where it was recorded. Because, yep. you know, probably a, the next week I'm going to read a, uh, listen to a completely different record and yeah. there'll be some commonality. I'm like, oh, wow, Steve Gadd's on both these albums. That's really awesome. Yeah. And they just don't have that ex- that tangible experience no. of music. It's funny, too, that um, uh, there's been a couple of – have you ever tried out for Jeopardy? No. Uh, my my boss was on Family Feud, though. <laughs> That's a whole That's other cool. story. The um, uh, there've been times. I think we've tried out twice now. My fiance and I have both tried out. Wow. Um, um, we've never gotten past whatever the first round is because the test is really hard. <laughs> I would think it's really hard. But his like his four or five like favorite categories are like you mean like prog rock, <laughs> obscure music, liner notes, That's exactly baseball. What I would... <laughs> and, like, like, we're, like, 
And I'll always say, like, um, I told him you know, I was having you on the podcast, and I was like, "Yes, your musical twin, Jason Rubin." And he's like, "And he's like, why do you say that?" I'm like, "Because you like all the same." We're going to talk you know. about Gentle Giant and King Crimson. And- <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's like, like um, he went to. I bought him tickets for um, the show at the Somerville. That I was like, my fiance is there tonight, and there would be no way. Ever that I would ever go to the show with him. He took his brother, who was very mm-hmm. happy about going. But I don't know where that was leading. That was going to go somewhere, and now I just totally lost my train of thought. Wow. <laughs> but it was going somewhere okay. good. Um, how long have you been in Malden, and how did you get here? I have been in Malden for, um, well, since about December 30th, 2010. And I got here because of my divorce. I was a uh, Melrose homeowner. We had bought the house while we were like nine months pregnant with Hannah, my oldest one. So uh, we bought that house in 1996. And um, when it came time for me to leave that house, uh, there weren't a lot of rental properties in Melrose. Perhaps there still aren't. So I looked in uh, Malden and um, and found an apartment I could afford. I wanted to be near the yeah, kids, obviously, yeah. so that I could you know pick them up whenever and have them and return them and just make it easy. Um, and for a long time, I did not feel like I was really a Malden person. Uh, I wasn't paying attention to the local politics. Mm-hmm. I didn't really. I didn't have any reason to care about the local schools because my kids were still in in Melrose. Yeah. And even though I I knew a lot of people in Malden, I belonged to a temple that was in Malden, which is now in Peabody. Um, I just, yeah, I just, I just never really, I mean, I grew up in Newton, so I'm a Newton boy. Mm -hmm. But I was in Melrose for a long time. And it wasn't until I started dating a woman from Malden who is very involved in yeah, politics yeah. and very involved in the schools and very involved in the art scene here, um, that I sort of looked around and thought, wow, Malden is a really cool there's community. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on and a lot of it's grassroots. There's like a lot of, um, you know, sort of citizen-initiated yeah. uh, activities and a lot of arts activities, and it's sort of like supported by the leadership of the city, but it all sort of bubbles up from yeah. the ground. And, it's interesting. Yeah, and I know a lot of, I mean, there's there's actually competing arts organizations that are fighting over the same turf, and what an yeah. amazing thing to have that sort of, compet, sort of competition yeah. with art. I know. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a really cool thing. What um, section of Malden do you live in? I live in Linden Square, yeah. the gritty area. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not that gritty. I live in Linden Square too. Yeah. What what um what road are you on? I'm on Lynn Street. I'm right on the oh, okay. Revere border. Okay, yeah. So so, so are we. Okay. In my out my kitchen window I see Harley Davidson and the Squire and the uh and the Revere Cinema. Oh, okay. Because a... I'm right on Oliver on the offshoot that okay. is is so do you ever go to the little diner? Eddie's? Yeah, to go to Eddie's. I used to. I don't I haven't been there in a few years. It's gotten better. 
it was it was kind of yucky at first, but now it's probably... yeah. It was it was called something else, and then they changed over and they put you know all these like signs out uh, on the in the windows about like what they order, what they uh, yeah. serve, burgers and everything. Yeah. And there's like two really bad typos. <laughs> <laughs> And I literally, I was like, if they can't spell omelet or burger, then I'm not going to win. It's, it's, a Brazilian, it's a Brazilian family, oh, so we'll forgive those typos. Okay. Um, the service is lovely. Okay. It's very basic diner, like, you know, eggs and omelets and the okay grilled cheese and coffee's good. Yeah, that's pretty much directly across the street from my apartment. I'm, okay. I'm right on the corner of Linen Beach. Oh, Okay. Yeah, because we're right, we're right around the corner on Oliver there. So that's how you knew there was that construction when I was, like, waving yeah. at the world, so, like, I hate everybody and everything. I can't breathe. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, because so the, so the construction is in, is in the, out my bedroom window. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was a house that had had a fire, and I was actually surprised yeah, but they were rebuilding it, yeah, not from the bottom up, like they top down. Yeah, it's like crazy. Yeah, I would have figured that the whole thing needed to be leveled. I was in Chicago when that um, when that fire happened, and my fiance was like texting me pictures, and I'm like, oh my god, we had just gotten the dog, and he's a greyhound, and we were like, oh, he must be freaked out. And he took a picture of the dog. The dog was laying on the porch floor, <laughs> like yeah, whatever. Mm. Sirens, fire, firemen, right? Like, not. Not plussed. Right. Nah, but whatever. now, yeah, I mean, now I feel like a, a Maldonian, and so I care that there's a burned out yes. house across the street, yes, and I want yes. that to be. In fact, my, my girlfriend, we met on OkCupid, okay and um, she's the one who reached out to me, and the thing that she wrote was, um, oh, I see you're another creative Maldonian. And I didn't consider myself a Maldonian at the time. Yeah. Um, but she appreciated the fact that that I was creative. She's an artist and a sign maker and, yeah. and supports the arts um, a lot. So that was sort of the the thing. I had to grow into that Maldonian label. I love that bus stop. I know it's like a it's like a, a it's like a Greek tragedy. At any moment of the day, <laughs> there is some sort of there's yelling oh or my. someone talking to themselves or just some you know some sort of drama happening. You could just sit on that right corner and the Dunkin' Donuts and the very strangely, um, well, actually, you couldn't because the Dunkin' Donuts, the seating is like really far in. It's like you have to walk through some sort of weird, strange right. space to get into the part where you would sit down. But if you could see the bus stop, then you could just write what was happening at the bus stop and imagine all the strange conversations and scenarios that are right. happening. So I have my my apartment is, is basically a. It's it's a it's a bedroom and a kitchen and a bathroom and that's all it is. And the bedroom is my office and my everything. So there's there's two windows that face the um, that bus stop, and then the space in between is where my desk is. Mm -hmm. So when I'm writing at home, I'm sitting in between the windows and occasionally we'll look out, look out, or I'll hear something. And I'm, so yeah, I have a direct view on the interesting uh, social. Interactions that take place in in beautiful Linden Square. I meet a ton of people out on the on the bike path too with mm. the dog. So like, do you ever go? Do you bike at all on the bike path? You know, I had just been mentioning this that um, the last two years when the Lime bikes were here, yep. they always kept at least eight of them 
in that parking lot right. in Linden Square. And yeah. this and this year, they they haven't been putting them there at all. No, I think um, the only ones I've seen have been across um, in like the ditch by the Dunkin' Donuts. But usually, they they try to put a bunch down at that end so that you can ride into town if you wanted. Mm. Yeah, talk, no. Talk I've been to Steve Winslow about it. I'll do that. I'll have Naomi do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything else? Just some ways of wrapping up. Uh, any other subjects you would like to? Oh, uh, do you have oh. a, a reading coming up for your book? Oh, gosh, golly gee. I do have a reading coming up in uh, Newton at Temple Beth Avoda, which is a temple I was bar mitzvahed in way back in 1976. Um, I'm doing a reading on Wednesday, May 29th at 7 o'clock. Uh, I am trying to schedule one at the Malden Library, nice. but they think that probably not until fall. Um, and, um, yeah, trying to do a few more things. The hard thing, you know, to me, it's like writing the book is the easy thing. Marketing it is the hard part. Yeah. And trying to, like, set up stuff and get your inventory of books and, you know, then figuring out how to do the reading and, um, and trying to make half a buck off it. When is our public reading for uh, the writers group too? I'm I believe that's the very next night, the thirtieth. The thirtieth. I thought it was the thirtieth. Yeah. I'm just looking at Chris's the flyer that Chris Hickey. And the library had asked me, um, because you know I'd I'd been in touch with them about trying to set up a reading, and they said, well, you're in the the writers group, so maybe you could read part of your book, you know, at the public reading, and then sell books there. And I thought, well, that would seem to put a lot of undue focus on that book as opposed to the things that I've been working on in the in the writers group so I I politely declined that. Yeah, and I think Chris I I I think Chris likes the idea of it being used as a showcase for who we workshopped that year. Mm-hmm. And technically obviously your book is part of that, but that's not the work that we read. No. It would be interesting to read how you've changed the work that we've read. Yeah, I mean, the, to me, that's that has been um, the most interesting part of of the writers' group for me is is actually seeing the process work yeah. and how it works and and how I how I personally benefited from it. And I certainly hope that that um, the comments that I make on other people's work that that benefits oh, yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if not, I apologize if any of my comments were snarky or sorry. I just don't like science fiction. Um, but, uh, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank I really you. appreciate you coming on and uh, hope this wasn't too painful. No, I actually liked it. After a while, I forgot all about the uh, microphone. Yes, and you're supposed to. I, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but hi, Felicia. <laughs> Sometimes people say it. Some people, some people don't. I've stopped trying to like, t- you know, t- tweeze it out of people. Um, but you could say at the end of the recording, you can say, "Bye, Felicia." There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Jason, See you soon. for coming on my program. Thank I appreciate you. it.